Uh, I want to just begin by saying, uh, perhaps not surprisingly to you, that I was uh, really disappointed by your responses to a number of my colleagues, most recently to Senator Coons, on the issue of whether you would participate in a decision involving the upcoming election if you are confirmed. I continue to believe that if you were to participate in a decision involving that election, it would do enduring explosive damage to the court. I think you know it would be wrong, not because of anything you've done. In fact, I'm not raising the issue of whether you've done any sort of deal or commitment because of what Donald Trump has done and my Republican colleagues, because they have indelibly put at issue your integrity through their statements. The president has said that he's putting you on the court as a ninth justice so you can decide the election. It's been very clear and transparent. And the American people are not dumb. They're watching and they're listening. And if you were to sit on this case, if it goes to the Supreme Court, uh, the American people would lose faith and trust in the court itself. It would be a dagger at the heart of the court and our democracy if this election is decided by the court rather than the American voters. So I wanted to begin by making that point and then go to, uh, again, the real people who are really in this room with us and who will be affected by you as a justice. Yesterday, I introduced you to Connor Kern, mm -hmm. you may recall. He's 10 years old. I was with him on his 10th birthday, September 27. It's a remarkable champion. He was diagnosed, as you may remember, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy at age four. His parents were told to take him home and give him a good life because he would soon lose his ability to walk, told his muscles would get so weak that he'd eventually lose his ability to smile and still smiling. What lies behind that smile is untold pain, physical pain, the anguish of going through the needles and the prodding and the treatments. But for his family, it's also the anguish of wondering whether they'll be able to pay for treatment that has kept him alive and whether he will be with them for all of life's milestones. They sent me a letter that they asked me to share with you, saying to you, Judge Barrett, please protect Connor. And they wrote also for millions of other Americans, 135 million Americans, many of them children, just like Connor, but also Christine Miller from Bloomfield, Connecticut. She was diagnosed with a thyroid condition. Her condition was only discovered because of the ACA, which gave her affordable coverage for the first time in a long time 
using Connecticut's exchange, healthcare exchange. And they wrote for people like Julia Lanzano in Cheshire, Connecticut. She suffered from headaches for years and she put off going to a doctor because she lacked insurance. So typical and common for people. Put it off. When Julia finally saw a doctor without, still without insurance, she learned she had a brain tumor and she was eligible for coverage under Connecticut's Medicaid expansion program, which was created by the Affordable Care Act. In her words, it was a godsend. I raise these stories in part because, as you know, I'm sure, protection for people who suffer from pre-existing conditions is in fact on the line in this case that will come to the Supreme Court only a week after the election. Uh, I want to be crystal clear because you stated to Senator Feinstein that, and I'm going to quote, uh, so far as I know, the case next week doesn't present that issue. It's not a challenge to pre-existing pre conditions coverage or to the extreme lifetime maximum relief from a cap. And technically, you're right, but it's a big but. If the trial court is upheld and there's no severability, the entire act goes down. That is what the Trump administration is asking the court to do. That's what the plaintiffs want done. Correct? Um, I gathered that's Senator Coons had shown the brief with the litigating position right. of the Department of Justice. I want to move on uh, to another uh, healthcare case um, and uh, this one involves uh, some of the letters that Senator Hawley was mentioning and I feel I need to raise them because Senator Hawley asked about them, so did Senator Leahy and I want to just clarify what they mean and I want to make absolutely clear, uh, I detest and oppose any religious test. I am not asking you any questions about your religious beliefs. Okay. I'm going to be asking some questions about your legal position. So in case I'm unclear in any of my questions, I want you to tell me. Thank you, Senator. Uh, you signed onto this uh, 2006 open letter sponsored by an organization then known as the St. Joseph's County Right to Life, which was published in the South Bend Tribune. Is that the letter that Senator Hawley was mentioning? I believe he, the statement that's on the left, I think Senator Hawley had read the language. I can't remember it verbatim, but it was something like, you know, we support the right to life from fertilization to natural death, yes. The letter and ad referred to Roe v. Wade's legacy as quote unquote barbaric, correct? 
I don't think that that's part of the statement. I think that's part of the ad that appeared on the page next to it. They appeared side by side, correct? I believe that it ran that way in the newspaper. I'm not sure that I ever saw it in the newspaper, but yes, that, that is my understanding. That's right how then. it appeared, so they were side by side. That's based, yes, based on since, yeah. And uh, the St. Joseph's County Right to Life sponsored the letter that you signed? Um, I think the St. Joseph County Right to Life organization was the one who presented the statement that I signed at the back of church. I want to give you an opportunity uh, to clarify. You didn't disclose that letter when you were nominated to the Seventh Circuit in 2017, did you? Um, I did not, Senator Blumenthal, and I'm actually very glad that you brought that up because I just want to clarify for the record, um, number one, that I didn't have any recollection of that letter. I signed it almost, or the statement. I signed it almost 15 years ago, quickly on my way out of church. And, you know, this questionnaire asks me for 30 years worth of material, and I've produced more than 1,800 pages. And so I didn't recall it. After it came to my attention, I did go back and look at the questionnaire, and I actually don't think that particular statement is responsive to question 12 which is, I think, the closest that it would come. I don't think it's responsive. But in any event, it is part of the public you know, record, and I'm very happy to discuss it's, it. But it's it part of the public the record now, and it's a letter. The questionnaire asked for letters. Have you disclosed it now? Have you provided it officially? Um, so, Senator, as I said, I, I've supplemented my questionnaire um, with other material that came to light that I do think was responsive. That one, and I would be happy to answer questions if you wanted questions for the record with more specific detail. But I did not understand that to be responsive to uh, question 12, I think it is. Well, in fact, we know about it only because The Guardian made it public, I believe. Let me ask you about another letter, 2013 letter. Mm -hmm. You signed on to this letter regarding Roe v. Wade. Uh, it was sponsored by the University Faculty for Life at Notre Dame. You're a member of that organization, correct? I do. And the letter described Roe v. Wade as, uh, behind me, infamous. And uh, it stated that the signatories, quote, renew our call for the unborn to be protected in law. Correct? Um. Yes, I believe the full statement says, I'm testing my eyesight here, our full support for our university's commitment to the right to life because, you know, Notre Dame is a Catholic university and embraces the teachings of the Catholic Church on abortion. And so as a faculty member and member of the University Faculty for Life, I signed that statement. But you didn't disclose that letter. Again, Senator, I produced 1,800 pages of material, and all six prior nominees have had to supplement because they've overlooked things. 30 years' worth of material is a lot to try to find and remember. You disclosed it, in fact, just about three days ago, I believe, right? Because that's when it was brought to my attention. I had no recollection of it, and it surfaced in the press, and so it came to my attention, and then I supplemented. And I did think it was responsive because it was a statement of an organization of which I was part, and I belonged to the University Faculty for Life at the time. If this process maybe had been a little less rushed, you might have had more time to 
go back and recall some of these documents? Well, Senator, as I said, all six prior nominees, or the most recent six, have had to supplement two. So I don't think it really had anything to do with time. I think it has to do with the volume of material. And when you and I spoke, when you appeared before this committee in connection with your 2017 nomination, I didn't have the benefit of any of these documents, although I asked you about right of privacy and the validity of Roe v. Wade, correct? Senator, I said on my SJQ when I was nominated to the Seventh Circuit, and I said again now, I produced all the material that I could find, and I conducted searches to try to find things that I forgot, and I didn't find that. I understand that someone had to manually go to Notre Dame and look through back archives. I, I didn't remember it, and I couldn't find it. I assure you I was not trying to hide it from you. So, Judge, and I apologize for interrupting you. I'm no, no, pressed for time. Uh, sure. Respectfully, I want to share another health care story with you. Uh, this is about Samantha. One night in January 2017, Samantha went out with a few friends and coworkers. She woke up the next morning in a coworker's home, confused, scared, covered in blood. She'd been raped. After she was raped, Samantha was, in her words, a zombie. She couldn't change clothes, she couldn't shower, she couldn't drink or think. She wanted this event to be erased from her memory. Samantha's attacker also began stalking her, and she was struggling with depression and PTSD. In March, Samantha took a pregnancy test, and then another, then another. They kept coming back with the same result, pregnant. After the horrible violence she faced, she simply couldn't process that she was now pregnant. When Samantha shared her story with me, she said, I knew if I couldn't end this pregnancy, it would end me. So she decided to get an abortion. Now, as you know, Judge, the landmark Roe v. Wade decision gave her that option. It gave women the right to decide for themselves whether and when to have a child. Roe didn't compel Samantha to get an abortion. It didn't tell her what she had to do, but it gave her that choice. The question that I would like to ask you concerns your legal position. Does the Constitution protect S Samantha's right to have an abortion? Roe versus Wade clearly held that the Constitution protected a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Casey upheld that central holding and spelled out in greater detail the tests that the court uses to um, consider the legality of abortion regulations. Now, I'm asking you this question because the group that sponsored the first letter, St. Joseph's County Right to Life, as it was then known, states, quote, abortion is never the right answer, even in cases of sexual assault or where the pregnant woman's life is in danger. And the purpose of the letters that you signed 
seem to be a statement of legal position, but you're saying that there is a constitutional right to an abortion. Senator, the statement that I signed from the St. Joseph County Right to Life didn't say anything about rape or incest or any of those things. It simply validated the teaching of my church on the sacredness of life from conception to natural death. What I hear you saying is, in the Constitution, there is that right. I, you mean when I was talking about Roe and Casey a moment ago? Well, yeah. Roe was correctly decided. You're agreeing that... What I said was that Roe held that the Constitution protects a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy, that Casey reaffirmed that holding, and indeed, many cases after Casey have uh, affirmed that holding again, Whole Women's Health, for example. Um, so I, I think we might be talking past each other because the statements that I signed were statements of my personal beliefs and not... Not your personal belief, Your Honor, your legal position. Are you willing to say that Roe was correctly decided? Because that's really the essence of the question here. Um, well, Senator, as I've said, you know, to others of your colleagues in response to questioning, that it's inconsistent with the duties of a sitting judge, and therefore has been the practice of every nominee that sat in the seat before me to take positions on cases that the court has decided in the past. Well, I think Samantha and a lot of rape survivors would be really deeply fearful about that answer because it provides no reassurance that you believe that Roe was correctly decided. Let me talk about Tracy. I want to tell you about her because she, again, came to me, told me she was diagnosed with stage four endometriosis and that it had caused an ongoing inability to have a healthy pregnancy. But as she said, she was one of the, quote, lucky ones. She had access to care and was able to receive treatment to assist in getting and staying pregnant. And I have encountered, maybe you have, many members of the military, veterans, who have sought similar kinds of treatment, some of them because they've suffered wounds of war. Tracy was scared when she saw the executive director of the St. Joseph County Right to Life recently stated, and I quote, we would be supportive of criminalizing the discarding of frozen embryos or selective reduction through the IVF process. So Tracy wanted me to ask you, in fact, she asked me to pose this question, is it your legal position that making IVF a crime would be constitutional? Well, Senator, the statement that I signed, as we discussed, you know, affirmed the belief of my church with respect to matters of life. I'm, I'm not asking about what you signed. I'm asking about your present legal position. But what, what is, I was... Is making IVF a crime Senator, constitutional? You're, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was trying to answer. You're, but you're quoting positions from the St. Joseph County Right to Life. I'm not a member of that organization. And so 
I'm not responsible for statements that they make. The statement that I signed said what you and I have discussed, and it said nothing further than that. And as for, you know, what policy position someone might take, you know, as I've said to your colleagues, I just, it's not up to me to be in the business of expressing views, and I am happy to talk about views that I expressed when I was a private citizen, but now I'm a judge, and so I cannot publicly express views. Just to be absolutely clear, I'm not asking about the St. Joseph County right to life or their positions, and I understand you may or may not disagree or agree with them, but your legal position, IVF treatment, and I'm not going to ask again, just this last time, criminalizing it, well, would it be constitutional? I think there's a clear answer. But, Senator, I've repeatedly said, as has every other nominee who sat in this seat, that we can't answer questions in the abstract. That would have to be decided in the course of the judicial process. With a case, some legislature would actually have to do that, and then litigants would have to come to court. There would have to be briefs and arguments and consultation with colleagues and opinion writing and consideration of precedent. So an off-the-cuff reaction to that would just circumvent the judicial process. Well, uh, again, I'm disappointed. I think Tracy would find that response somewhat chilling because she and thousands, maybe millions of women, potential parents, would be horrified to think that IVF treatment could be made criminal. And I understand you're not answering the question, but I think um, she would be deeply fearful. Do you think that it would be constitutional to make it a crime for doctors or health care providers to provide that care or abortion care? Well, Senator, again, that's a hypothetical question. And so, as I've said, to give off-the-cuff responses about abstract issues, and, and I should clarify to say it really doesn't matter if they're hard questions or easy questions. It's just any questions that call for an abstract legal opinion are not ones that are appropriate for me to give either as a sitting judge or as a nominee. Um, those questions in my judicial role can be answered only through the judicial process. Just to be absolutely clear, there are millions of women like Samantha and Tracy and the veterans I mentioned who are terrified to think that their doctors and health care providers would be potentially in jail at risk of prosecution. Doctors who are exercising currently protected rights that Samantha says saved her life. And I believe our healthcare providers are heroes, particularly during the pandemic. But I want to ask you one, one more question about these documents. In the 2013 letter that you signed, uh, there is the following statement. Um, we renew our call for the unborn to be protected in law, in law, and welcomed in life. What does it mean for, quote, the unborn to be protected in law? Does that statement mean there is no valid constitutional protection for an abortion 
and therefore Roe v. Wade should be overturned? Um, you know, I think that statement is an affirmation of life. You know, it points out that we express our love and support for the mothers who bear them. Again, it was a statement validating the position of the Catholic University at which I worked in support for life and to, you know, support women in crisis pregnancies, to support babies. So it's, it's really no more than the expression of a pro-life view. I expect we'll be talking more about this issue tomorrow. I want to move now to a, another topic. Uh, you and Senator Durbin and others talked about your dissent in Cantor v. Barr. And I think your approach here, in effect, usurps the legislature's appropriate role in making policy judgments in the case of Cantor, which, by the way, you put first on the list of decisions that you thought were most important that you have written. Is that correct? I don't remember the order in which I listed them. It was first. I, I accept that. I, I just don't remember the order. Okay. I did list it. I remember listing it. But. Okay. Um, but that decision seems to usurp the legislature's role in deciding who should be permitted to have firearms and who should not. Because you decided the legislature was wrong to classify felons as not deserving of firearms. You decided as a matter of policy that when they were not dangerous, they should have that right. That's a policy or legislative judgment. And I think it has huge ramifications for real people across the country. And I want to tell you about one of them from Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Natalie who is shown here with her brother Daniel. Daniel was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14th. 2012. Dan Daniel was seven. I was there that day. I saw the parents after they'd learned that they had lost 20 beautiful children. And six great educators died as well. In the firehouse that day, there was unspeakable grief. And eight years later, Natalie says, that grief remains with her. But Natalie, like Newtown, is resilient and strong, and her grief and trauma have spurred hope and action. She and many young people across the country are leading a movement to deal with the epidemic and scourge of gun violence in this country. What happened at Sandy Hook was not an isolated instance there have been 236 other mass shootings in the last decade, in the last 10 years. Gun violence has taken more than 354,000 lives in rural communities and urban communities all around the country, and I'm sure in Indiana and South Bend as well. Your opinion in Cantor goes farther than Justice Scalia in Heller. In fact, you 
characterized it as kind of radical. It is, in effect, an outlier. And it is, in fact, radical. Did I say it was radical in the opinion? I think you said, quote, it sounds kind of radical to say felons can have firearms. That's a direct quote. Oh, I didn't remember that particular language. You can. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'll, I just don't recall it, but I'm not nitpicking about it. We can look it up. That, that, oh, that's fine, Senator. I, I, I don't think you're making it up, yeah. trust me. No, I, I, I'll check it and look it up. But I know that's not the thrust of your question. It sounds it. kind of radical because it is radical. In fact, uh, no courts of appeals, except maybe the Seventh Circuit, has adopted this reasoning. The Third Circuit, I think, has a rule that's. The Third Circuit. Any others? I don't know that it's I come think, up. I knew others, there was the one third... circuit that did. I wasn't sure which one. But we thank were, you. My position was consistent with a Third Circuit en banc decision that had already been decided. And cutting through all of the legalese, and we've had quite a bit of it going back and forth, what this approach does potentially is mean that Connecticut's gun safety provision, that the people of Newtown Kristen and Michael Song, on behalf of their son, Ethan, who perished because of a gun that was unsafely stored. They championed a measure called Ethan's Law. Common sense measures that might have prevented the death of Shane Oliver, Janet Rice's son, who died on October 20th, 2012. Shane was killed when he was 20 years old in Hartford. He died fighting for his life in Hartford Hospital. And measures like the emergency risk protection order that Connecticut now has, 19 states have these laws. They've saved lives. And extreme risk protection order laws, which help minimize risk, might well be struck down under the reasoning of your, your dissent. Respectfully, Senator, my dissent would not reach even those issues. My dissent was about the narrow question about whether a felon who had um, sold fraudulent foot inserts um, could automatically be disqualified from his Second Amendment rights simply on that basis. It said that guns can be kept out of the hands of the dangerous, and it didn't say anything about other gun safety or background check. Those are all issues that are being litigated across the country and were not at issue in Cantor. But supplanting the legislator's judgment about when dangerous people should be protected from themselves if they are potential suicides, as Vic Bencomo, a veteran in Iraq, found when his friend was going to take his life, the emergency risk protection order would have been available. Deciding what is dangerous, who is dangerous, 
when weapons should be taken away from them, if the courts are going to supplant the judgments of legislatures, if judges are going to legislate from the bench, that's the import of your reasoning in that dissent. It may not have dealt precisely with any of these particular laws, but the reasoning throws into doubt. It raises the risk to many of them. And folks who live in Connecticut are terrified of that prospect, at least well, many Sandy who talk to me. Sandy Hook was a tragedy. Um, so I, I express the deepest sympathy for those who experienced that loss there and elsewhere. But Cantor, you know, I, I hope you take some comfort from Cantor being a much narrower decision that doesn't have any effect on those sorts of loss. Thank you, Senator. Thank Brown. you. Thank you, Judge. Thank